0: Tonight's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 3, 8-12, God's word says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Lord God, thank you for the unity that we have in the blood of Jesus. And it is a unity that is declared of us and is also a unity that you call us into. And so, God, I I just come on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ tonight asking that you would show us the way to be unified. As you call us to experience the rich unity we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight that, God, if our hearts at their very core experience disunity, that, God, you would help us to experience unity in and of ourselves. But more than that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to experience unity between neighbors. As, Lord Jesus, you call us to love our neighbors. And, God, most of all, that we would experience unity with you. That that is the first and foremost priority that we have, is that we would experience the unity that you have for us with you in the gospel. And God, we trust your power to save us from our sin and our disunity. God, would you meet us tonight as we worship you in spirit and in truth for the sake of unity among your church, among your saints. God, be with us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul was ministering in the city of Ephesus at the time when he got news that there were divisions growing in the church of Corinth. Now think about how discouraging that must have been for Paul. You're tirelessly, tirelessly working to preach the gospel, to plant a church, and to grow leaders for that church when a report comes about a church you had ministered to in another city and they're now wavering in their faith. The church in Corinth was divided. Paul spent a year and a half of his life there and it was now crumbling apart in his absence. What do you do? Well, All he knew to do was to minister to them, and his ministry took the form of a long letter that we identify as 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to 1 Corinthians tonight. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's main concern is to help the church in Corinth deal with these divisions. They are saints, after all, as we saw last week. When we studied the the greeting that begins this letter, we learned that we are saints. We are those who are sanctified, set apart, declared holy for the purposes that God has for us, for our lives. And it is purely by the grace of God that we are called to be saints. And if we are indeed called to be saints, then we need to act like it. More than just pretend, no, we take action. If we are declared to be saints, we must take action that shows us to be saints. We learned briefly last week that part of living saintly in the midst of a crooked generation is to be united with all other saints. Paul says in verse 2 that we are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Tonight, we will see exactly what exactly is this unity that Paul proposes to us as saints. What brought this on and what does it present to a world around us? So, hopefully, you found 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 10 through 17 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 say this I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord God, would you teach us, humble us, soften our hearts to hear this word that you have for us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. I've entitled tonight's sermon, Pursuing Gospel Unity. Pursuing gospel unity. The, the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians are Paul's reproof against the divisions that had formed in the church of Corinth because of their tendency to glory in men. They were lifting up their teachers and baptizers, which in turn formed various parties that made their preferences ultimate. With that in mind, let us use this as a case study to see how Paul deals with divisions so that we can pursue the same gospel unity. So we see here Paul presents to the church in Corinth dealing with divisions first, a gospel unity proposition, a gospel unity proposition. Paul appeals to the church in Corinth with a proposition, a plan of action to help them achieve unity, but not just any unity, gospel unity. Look again with me at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. So let's start by noting what the gospel unity that Paul proposes to the church in Corinth looks like. First, it looks like complete agreement, doesn't it? Doesn't he say, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that all of you agree. Very plainly, Paul believes the church in Corinth should agree. So let's just take a step back and realize what he's calling them to. Because any number of us could probably point to somebody in this room that we've got a disagreement with. We've got to ease into this sermon tonight. There should be comprehensive Affirmation towards the decisions that the saints are making collectively. Right? And this is this spits in the face of radical individualism. Where it says, I can make my own choices. According to the Greek, the Corinthians should voice their agreement. He's literally saying, Y'all say the same things. In other words, be one voice that echoes throughout the city of Corinth. Second, it looks like no divisions. No divisions. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that there be no divisions among you. Paul urges the church in Corinth to get over their divisiveness. The sentiment is not just avoid the other party. Rather, it is be reconciled to one another. Following the thought from the last point, one shouldn't be able to separate the whole of the church into disagreements. It shouldn't happen. They should agree to the extent that the people are undivided in their opinions. That is the opinions that matter. Third, it should look like same mind, same judgment. Same mind, same judgment. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul strikes to the core of where the, the battle of, of unity lies. That is in one's mind. He appeals to the church in Corinth that they are to be of the same mind and the same judgment. Is, that is to say, the same opinion. And again, that's the opinions that matter. It's not a debate about your favorite movie or your favorite color. Right? No, we should have an, a, the right opinion about what is right and what is wrong. Based on the same standard that is always rooted in God's word. We have to be of the same mind, the same judgment. And where do our opinions originate? The mind. Paul desires the church to have the same mind. And and that's kind of a preview of what's coming in chapter 2 when he says, we have the mind of Christ. That's what he's getting at. We have the same mind, and it will produce the same judgments or opinions so that there aren't divisions because they all agree. And I think it would help us to arrive at what Paul is getting at here if we also acknowledge what Paul doesn't say uni- unity looks like. What Paul doesn't say unity looks like. And we are helped by Kina Aragon Uh, who wrote an article at the beginning of this year for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, She points out three things that unity is not. Uh, First, unity is not a virtue in and of itself. Unity is not a virtue in and of itself. She says, "...as pleasant as it is when brothers dwell in unity..." She's referencing Psalm 133 there. "...as pleasant as it is when brothers dwell in unity, unity is not a virtue in and of itself. She says, The unity at the Tower of Babel, or between Herod and Pilate, shows us that unity is a vehicle used for good or evil purposes. She's right. We should not seek unity for unity's sake. There are some who seek unity for the sake of unity and it is based solely on desires to have unity and that desire does not produce sustainability. Amen. According to Paul, later in Ephesians 4, our unity must be based on the shared doctrine of who Jesus Christ is for us. Amen. That is what produces gospel unity. Second, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. She says, biblical unity is not uniformity. The family of God is a diversity of people gifted to serve each other for the sake of unified maturity in the faith. Though we are one in Christ, God doesn't erase our unique gifts, abilities, personal preferences, or other distinctions like gender or age. He also doesn't erase our ethnic and cultural heritages. She's absolutely right. That's so beautiful. God's children do not all look the same. It pleases the Lord to gather a diverse group of people into His church and one day at His table in the great banquet in the new heavens and the new earth. Praise God for all His wisdom to call people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to lift high the name of Jesus. And I'd want to take a moment to give thanks that I get to experience rich friendship with my brother in Christ, Jason Gadagala. Although I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, my brother was born and raised on the other side of the planet in India. And yet we benefit in brotherly affection and friendship because God has come upon him in the form of the Holy Spirit and so gifted him that I benefit from his spiritual gifts and he mine. That is beautiful diversity that you can't orchestrate. It is purely by the gift of God. I give thanks for my brother. And you too. There's no partiality here. <laughs> Third, unity is not divorced from justice. Unity Is not divorced from justice. She says, Christian unity doesn't sweep evil under the rug or stiff arm critique or dismiss conflict in order to maintain a kumbaya circle with the vulnerable while the vulnerable suffer in silence. She goes on, unity divorced from appropriate justice is faux unity, tantamount to bearing false witness concerning the holiness of God who will not be mocked. That's strong. Anger stirs up within us because of a sense of injustice. If there's ever a flare-up of anger, it's because you have some sense of injustice, which can oftentimes be accurate. So it is no wonder... That where there is disunity, there is injustice, surrounded by a cloud of outrage and anger. The hard road to gospel unity is paved with justice. And with every step you take on that road, anger is subdued and unity. Is achieved. We see what gospel unity is, and we've seen what gospel unity is not. So, how do we get there? How could we possibly get there? Paul's proposition is grounded in a name. In fact, it's the most Powerful name there is. A name the Corinthians were very familiar with. It is the name that made them saints, after all. A name that unites them to all others who call on that name to save them from their sins. It is, of course, the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Paul says again in verse 10 I appeal to you, brothers and sisters by or through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this proposition, we see a marvelous truth. Don't miss it. A marvelous truth that we all need to cling to for the rest of our lives on this earth. And it is this. If the name of Jesus is powerful enough to resolve our greatest disunity, that is the eternal separation from our creator God, then it is more than enough to resolve any other disunity, that is the divisions we experience in his church. Do you get what that says? Because this truth has gotten me out of a lot of conflict. That if my greatest problem in life was the disunity I experienced with my creator God as I rebelled against him, if it's solved by me calling on the name of Jesus Christ, and it has been, then any other disunity I may experience must and can be resolved by the same name. That heals wounds. That changes things. That gets to the very heart of the matter. The name of Jesus Christ has everything to do with every broken relationship you've experienced. Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus and only Jesus. What is the source of our unity? Not the desire for unity itself, but the unchangeable nature of our God and King. If it is his steadfast love that has saved us, it has to be his steadfast love that unites us. Paul tells us we have been given the mind of Christ. He says it in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the wisdom of Jesus Christ to pursue gospel unity in the church. He has given us what we need to achieve gospel unity. The gospel unity that Paul proposes that leads to complete agreement, no division, same mind, same judgment. It seems impossible, but it's not because we have the mind of Christ. If it was true of the church in Corinth, it must be true for us. Paul then goes on to present, second, a gospel unity problem. He shows and presents a gospel unity proposition. Second, Paul presents a gospel unity problem. Look again at verses 11 through 16. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Chloe's people gave a report to Paul about quarreling that was occurring in the church. Some, but not many, were baptized by Paul and and followed his teaching, which likely emphasized Christian liberty. But others were baptized by Apollos, another uh, solid, itinerant preacher who passed through Corinth. Those probably followed up the teaching of Apollos, which they likely esteemed Christian learning, because Apollos was really smart, articulate. And then there's this guy named Cephas. Anybody know that guy? Peter, that's right. Cephas is his Hebrew name. And and we read Peter's, uh, for our scripture reading, we, we heard Peter's stance on unity. Yet, it seems that Peter visited Corinth at some point and brought with him a particularly Jewish-flavored gospel that presented the life of a believer in the framework of law. That's probably the law of Christ that was appreciated by Jewish believers. Some were baptized by him and followed his teaching. And finally, there's what I like to call the Jesus-jukers. We'd like to think that there were some who stayed above the fray and just said, you know, I'm going to live out the mind of Christ uh, that had been given to, to them. But nowhere does Paul commend this party. He, he doesn't esteem to the other parties, hey, these, this is the party that got it right. He could have easily propped up that party as the one that got it right. But that condemnation, that, I'm sorry, that commendation is absent. This is purely speculative, but it is easy to imagine them being a holier-than-thou bunch that just said, we're going to love each other. That's a total of four factions in the church of Corinth. It was very divided. And Paul's response is to pepper them with some theological questions. And I, I, for one, appreciate that approach. When someone's orthopraxy is out of whack, let's investigate their orthodoxy. When wrong practice is flaring up, let's let's look at the doctrine, because typically wrong practice stems from wrong doctrine. So Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer, of course, to all three of these questions is no. No, Christ isn't divided. In fact, he is in perfect unity with the other persons in the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit who we sung about. And Paul was not crucified for the sins of the Corinthians. He and the other teachers who came to town are not worthy of their worship. And no one is baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos or Peter. The Great Commission tells us to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul is getting at the heart of the problem. The divisions of the church are based upon the glorification of man, not God. So it's no wonder that they are as divided as they are. Paul is relieved that he cannot be blamed for the division. He has stayed clear from encouraging any man-centered worship. He boasts in the fact that he didn't baptize but a few people and kind of seems to forget who did he baptize. Which is saying something because Paul cares deeply about baptism. Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 4 tell us this. Written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He cares about baptism. While baptism is not necessary for salvation, it is expected of every professing believer and is very important for what it displays to those inside and outside the church. What is truly sad is that there were some in the church who were getting baptized primarily to associate themselves with a famous teacher, not the great teacher. And it goes to show that there are wrong reasons to want to be baptized. The primary reason you should want to be baptized is to walk in obedience of what Christ has called you to do. Jesus was baptized to relate to us. We are baptized to relate to him as Paul says in Romans 6. We show the gospel to a watching world and a watching church. The world says, "How ridiculous. This is just a phase." But the church looks at the same person and says, we'll take him as one of our own and we will disciple him. We will take her as one of our own and we will disciple her. Not so they look like Andrew Cross or Tanya Franks or Steve Gaines or Donna Gaines. No. So that they actually become more like Jesus which is what Paul brings it back to for the church in Corinth as he presents to them a gospel unity proclamation. A gospel unity proclamation. Let's see again how he ends this passage in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul kind of sidesteps the topic of baptism altogether, doesn't he? And he gets to the heart of the matter. Gospel unity is all about the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ declaring his power to save us from our sin. If the message was dependent upon the messenger as it seems the church in Corinth evidently thought it would empty the cross of its power. The gospel is summed up by Paul here as what Jesus did for us on the cross in taking our sins upon himself, the sinless son of God. He atoned for our sins placing us in right relationship with our God if, if we have called on the name of Jesus. It's a simple yet powerful message. It's simple in that a child can understand it, as many of you might bear testimony of. Praise God for those testimonies. It's so powerful a scoundrel can be saved by it, as many of us can testify to. Paul's life and ministry was devoted to preaching it, preaching this simple, powerful gospel. Is that true of you? Is your life and your personal ministry actually sold out, devoted to that gospel? And this is where we find our main point for the night. We experience true unity when we prioritize the gospel above all else. We experience true unity when we prioritize the gospel above all else. And we can even reverse that statement to see another truth. That if we don't prioritize the gospel, we won't experience true unity. In fact, if we're not experiencing true unity, then we have prioritized anything other than the gospel. We aren't really driven to divisions based on who baptized us or who teaches us. That's that's not us. By and large, that's not how we experience divisions today. But that doesn't mean that we don't experience disunity. In fact, I think there are some in our ministry and church who are very divided. Some people want to complain about different churches and denominations that exist on a macro level because they don't want to address the disunity that exists at the micro level. Rather post a comment on a thread that says, aren't we all on the same team? Rather than lay their preferences aside to resolve conflict with a brother and sister in Christ in person. I'm not here to preach against denominations. I'm here to preach against demonic strongholds. Here are just two ulterior priorities I see running rampant today. Both of which are based out of selfish ambition, which James calls demonic. The first, supplanting the gospel that should be our priority, we place personal comfort in unresolved conflict. Personal comfort in unresolved conflict. I don't think I have to go into too much detail here. We've all felt this at one point or another. You get hurt by someone and you want nothing to do with them. You avoid them. You gossip about them. You plot against them. You give your mental energy to thinking about how worse off they are without you. Meanwhile, it is only deepening a division at the cost of your own soul. Second, supplanting the gospel is our priority. We place political agenda posted online. It's not enough that our nation is divided. Since everything is politicized now, division has seeped into the church this way. Many of us have posted something online that we regret. You lambast your political opponents, receive the affirmation of your echo chamber, and enjoy the negative energy that comes from a feedback loop. We don't notice the people we marginalize as they disappear, and that's kind of the point. The only time we notice our opponents is when we get into it on social media and God forbid we see them at church. If the ministry in church knows you've got beef with someone else in the ministry in church, you haven't prioritized the gospel. If the ministry in church knows your stance on vaccines and masks but haven't heard you articulate your testimony, let alone the gospel, you haven't prioritized the gospel. So two applications to help us. And before I dive into them, there is grace for every person in this room. Wherever you've fallen short, and maybe it's not one of these two areas, but wherever you've fallen short and just experienced divisiveness, with a brother or sister in Christ, there is grace for you. That Jesus is calling you into something rich. And it's a relationship bound in the blood of Jesus. It's a relationship that is right now broken, but could bring him much glory as you are reconciled to one another. And here's the good news. The grace is the only thing that can patch it up the right way. It's the only thing powerful enough to patch it up the right way. So two applications, and they, the prerequisite for these has to be to prioritize the gospel. Prioritize the gospel and first submit your feelings to Christ and resolve the conflict. Prioritize the gospel, submit your feelings to Christ, and resolve the conflict. Put your personal comfort aside. Obedience isn't always comfortable. Remember that no one, no one has done to you what your sin did to Jesus Christ on the cross. And if he's forgiven you of that, what is stopping you from forgiving someone else? Be reconciled. Second application: prioritize the gospel and abstain from posting contentious comments on social media. Prioritize the gospel and abstain from posting contentious comments on social media. Put your per, per, put your political persuasion aside. I'm not saying don't have one. Everyone has one. I have one, and you could probably pick it out of a lineup but you don't see me boasting about it. You don't see me bragging about it. You don't see me having all the answers to all the political dilemmas. It's not my place. Remember, Jesus doesn't take sides. He takes over. How many times have you heard that from the Bellevue pulpit? You live for his kingdom, not the other way around. So stop using them that way. If someone gets offended at a post that you post, I hope it is because the gospel is offensive. As you tell people, they are a sinner in need of a great Savior. That's offensive to a world. Let that be what they're offended by, not our political stance or political persuasion. The most important thing about you is what do you do with Jesus Christ? That is, bar none, the most important thing about you is what do you do with Jesus Christ? Obviously. Obviously. I'm here to urge you, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and let it mean something to you. And let it impact every aspect of your life. That'd be the greatest thing you do with our Savior. Give him rule and reign over every aspect of your life as you prioritize the gospel. There may be some ulterior priorities that i didn't list this is not a comprehensive list it's not just these two things in fact if you if i'm going to give you homework think of some others and let me know what do you see these are just the two most prevalent that i see in our society today with my lenses and if we want to experience true unity then we must prioritize the gospel above all else So will you abandon your opinions and your preferences and pursue gospel unity? And let it be through the name and the saving work of Jesus Christ that we find that gospel unity. May we be in agreement, no divisions, same mind, same judgment. Is it possible? It is possible purely by the name of Jesus Christ. It is possible. So by God's grace, let it be so. Let's pursue gospel unity. Amen.